Hello listeners and welcome to this episode of Radio Press. In association with Sculvera Cork. I'm delighted to be bringing you this episode. I'm Ronan McAuliffe. And I'm a man. So Ronan, I've heard we've got a great lineup for this week's podcast. Could you tell us a few of the pieces that are coming up? Yes, we do, man. We've got a fabulous lineup all together. We have George Hook and Ron Murphy are going to be talking about a film that they both have watched. Isaac Lee is going to be bringing us his tech talk and Mark O'Connell talking about collectibles. It sounds great, Ronan. I heard we also have Ross Daly speaking about conversion therapy and a local singer-songwriter who's going to sing us out at the end of the episode, so stay tuned. Well, I'm absolutely delighted about this episode and let's get straight into it. Well, first up, we start this show on a poetic note and today Ruben Skews is going to be reflecting on a poem that he's written that talks about lockdown and COVID in school. Iman, what do you think about that? I'm sure it's a topic we're all familiar with, so it'll be great to get some more insight. And right after that, we secret straight on to Charlie Collins, who'll be bringing us a piece on learning in lockdown. Retrospect. A buzz could be felt around the school. The news made a splash. Prez was its pool. We were off like rockets, through the ceiling. Boy, did we a few. Our teachers were reeling amid the feeling their work was being undone. But we were simply having fun. For upon our school year, we saw a setting sun. Done. It seemed life was at its peak. Yet they dismissed us. We'd be back in a week. Things got out of control. Rumours of military patrol? Time is something COVID stole, but still, onwards it rolls. So much has happened since last March. Thirst for a vaccine has left us parched. Finally, it seems, on the horizon. It's truly what we've set our sights on. Now a word from the people's champion. He who has no imagination has no wings. So, spread your wings. Even during COVID, seize the world's offerings. Remember a few years ago, before education was affected by slow internet or dodgy microphones, when students either walked, were driven or rode to school, when technology only served as an aid to learning or distraction from it, and not the actual classroom itself, when the mere idea of online learning seemed ridiculous. Yet, here we are. Remote learning has revolutionised the way we interact with and attend school due to the incredible advancements of technology. Having interviewed many students, it has left many divided whether or not they are for or against it. On one hand, some students enjoy the morning lion. When they can get up late, simply turn on their device and boom, they're in school. Most find this relaxes them and helps them focus for the rest of the day. They feel under less pressure and that they are in a more comfortable learning environment at home. They find remote learning more productive without a teacher breathing down their neck. This allows them to get more work done and have more free time without the long commute to and from school. On the other hand, however, some students feel as if the days are longer. They miss the social interaction of the classroom between friends and the more interactive teaching environment where they believe they learn more than staring at a blank screen for a day. Many feel as if they lack the focus and motivation the classroom environment seems to provide, as if their home and school lives have been meshed together in one big ugly heap of assignments, battery percentage, internet connection and having to push a button to speak. Having interviewed some teachers, they have also voiced their opinions on remote learning. They found it difficult to assess a student's engagement during class and their true understanding of what was being taught. They found teaching from a blackened screen to be a dull and boring experience. Like many, they believed it wasn't the same as in-class interaction. Who can say what place remote learning has in the future, after this godforsaken pandemic? Will it be used further, or will it be scrapped? It's hard to say. Either way, it has proved itself to be a useful tool. Thanks for tuning into Radio Press. Ever wonder 
what retired sports stars do to pay their bills when they retire. Here's Leon and Emmett. On this episode of Sports Hub, Emmett and I will be taking a look at the life of sports stars after retirement and how they continue to make money. There are many routes sports stars can take after retirement. Some athletes might want to stay involved in their respective sports by going into management or punditry, while others might prefer to get involved in other businesses to take a break from their hectic sports lives. To begin, we are going to tell you about George Foreman. A lot of you may have only heard of the name from the grill. However, he was a former heavyweight champion boxer from Texas. Yeah, personally I was never familiar with the George Foreman boxer, but more with the grill. After a long successful career, Foreman, after regaining his title, fought Shannon Briggs in what was to be his final fight at the age of 48, where he controversially lost. Because of this, Salt and Inc. approached Foreman, who at the time were looking for a spokesperson for its fat-reducing grill. Foreman has never confirmed how much money he has made from this endorsement, but he was paid $137.5 million for the right to use his name, hence the creation of the George Foreman. He has earned well in excess of $200 million from this unlikely career opportunity. Another hugely successful athlete post-retirement is David Beckham. Beckham is greatly respected around the world, not only just by football fans, but everyone. He was an English hero that was heavily involved in some of the biggest Manchester United and Real Madrid teams. Most notably, the treble-winning United team and Real Madrid's Galacticos. Retirement from football has done nothing to weaken David Beckham's brand. If anything, the former England captain has grown even more popular since he hung up his boots and began to focus solely on his life off the pitch. He's been heavily involved in fashion and modelling and has also kept involved with football. He has recently launched another new project being the Miami-based MLS club Inter-Miami CF. In 2014 alone, David Beckham made $75 million. His net worth is estimated to be at around $450 million. Yeah, Leon, as a United fan of myself, I really loved watching old clips of Beckham playing like he was an amazing player, one of the best players in the Prem. Anyway, another huge sporting figure who has been tremendously successful while staying within his sport is Tony Hawk, a professional skateboarder from California. You may know him through his video game series, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. You may have seen him on YouTube, or you may not know him at all. Nonetheless, he's been an incredibly successful businessman and athlete. Unlike a lot of his peers at the time, Hawk managed to get his brand into the mainstream. Since the launch of his video game, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, which began in 1999, Hawk has generated over $1.4 billion. Have you ever played the game, Emmett? No, I haven't, to be honest, Leon. I've never been big into the skateboarding, but I've definitely watched some of his YouTube clips, and I have to say it does look impressive what he's doing. Tony Hawk has also created his own clothing brand of skating apparel called Hawk Clothing, which is another source of income for him. His net worth is around 140 million. As technology and the world advances, people are finding more and more ways to create income such as cryptocurrencies, stock markets and social media channels such as YouTube and Twitch. Before we finish up, I have to ask you Emmett, who's your favourite sports star? Oh, there's, there's loads, but I'd have to say Cristiano Ronaldo. Probably, in my opinion, the best uh, ever play football ever. Obviously, I haven't watched some of the old stuff, but just what he's achieved in the game... The goals he's scored, the finals he's won, the trophies he's won. I think he's just incredible. What about you? For me, as a Chelsea fan, it's got to be N'Golo Kante. The guy's won everything and the guy's always smiling. That's it for this week's Sports Hub. I've been Emmett. And I've been Leon. Thanks for listening. Pro 
over 100 years, tours have been part of rugby union. For 25 of those years, Irish Rugby Tours has been bringing schools, colleges and clubs to the far corners of the globe. Despite the disaster of 2020, none of our clients lost a deposit. We are now organising innovative plans for when the sport reopens. Why not visit our site at irishrugbytours.com or better still, contact us to talk about our ideas. Girls play rugby too! Alright guys, thanks for that piece on the Sports Hub. But next up, George Hook and Ronan Murphy are going to be bringing you an intergenerational look on a classic movie. Welcome to Radio Prez. I'm Ronan Murphy and today I'm going to be talking about a very old movie. Most movies people know about today are only from the last 10 or 20 years. But if you're willing to look back maybe 60, 70 years, you can find some absolute gems. The movie I'm going to be talking about today is a 1967 classic. In the heat of the night. With me here to discuss the movies, George Hook. Roland, thanks for having me. I'm astonished that a transition year student uh, would, would talk about it in the heat of the night, which happens to be one of my favourites as well. So thanks for asking me to come in. And I think many of the people listening won't have seen it. So we have a great opportunity here to talk to them about it. What brought you to that movie? I uh, just happened to come across it by chance. I was... Uh looking through movie reviews one day, and this one stuck out to me. Ron, it's interesting because, of course, the setting is is about a man being murdered in Mississippi. But but the real point about In the Heat at Night, it's about the American South in 1967 when rich, racial prejudice uh, would have been huge. So the actors here, who were the actors and, and what happened? One of the main actors was Sidney Poitier as uh, the police Officer Detective Virgil Tibbs and Roger Steiger as a police chief. Yeah. Now, Steiger is is a typical Southern uh, police chief and he's biased and everything else. But where did a black guy come into the movie? Because how did he turn up in the movie then? It's one of the most interesting parts, I think. It started off when a man is found dead in the street and the police chief inspects the body. He tells one of his officers to search everywhere, look around and arrest anyone that's uh, looking shady. So he goes around, he checks the town and when he arrives at the train station he sees Sidney Poitier dressed in a white man's clothes. He's wearing a suit and everything. So naturally he assumed that they're stolen, they're not his. He arrests him, he takes his wallet, he sees how much money in it. He just assumes it was uh, stolen and after the dead body and he brings him into the station. When the chief uh, opens the wall, he finds a police badge and he actually searches a little harder. That's uh, how they... It's actually, it wasn't quite as simple as that, Ronan. Um, like, you're absolutely right. Poitier has a, um, a wallet with money in it. So they automatically, as you rightly say, it's stolen. And there's a wonderful moment in it, I think, where Steiger says to Sidney Poitier, who's this black guy, and as far as he is concerned, the murderer, <laughs> and he says, uh, what does a guy like you do to get money? Do you remember? Yeah, and yeah. then Poitier says, I am a police officer. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. That was a striking sentence, I thought. Did you? Yeah, definitely. It was very powerful. There's a lot of lines like that where uh, Sidney Poitier puts characters in their place. Everyone in Mississippi is stacked against him, all the other police officers, even the locals. There's one famous scene where 
After Rod Steiger learns Sidney Poitier's name, Virgil Tibbs, he asks what they call him up in Philadelphia. He thinks it's a funny name for a black man. And so uh, Virgil Tibbs replies with the famous line, They call me Mr. Tibbs. Uh, you, you see, the thing about this is that it's only when Poitier produces the police badge that the whole thing shifts now because he's a policeman. But nobody can understand how a guy is a black policeman, right? There's no chance in Mississippi. Um, the film wasn't made in Mississippi. Where was it made? It was made in uh, Illinois, actually. Which is interesting. It was shot in location. Where the the reason they shot it in Illinois, Ronan, was it, it really wouldn't have been safe for them in 1967 to make a movie like that in Tennessee, and mm. and it's why they did it. Um, just like your transition, your student, Ronan, you look at a movie that's made um, over 50 years ago now. Ignoring the movie just for a moment. Like, how familiar would you be with the kind of racial prejudice that existed in America at that time? I wouldn't be particularly familiar at all. I mean, none of them really go to the full extent to show just how bad it was and just how prejudiced everyone was against them. And I think uh, this movie really is unique, that it does just show a very accurate, or what I think is accurate, depiction of of the South in the uh, 50s and 60s. Yeah, I mean, many of people, including me, um, would have uh, been active against South African apartheid. But apartheid in the South in 1967, and this is why this film is so good, um, was like South Africa. Coloreds, as they were called, sat in different chairs, sat in a different part of the bus, went to a different toilet, you know. Um, but there's there's another one. I wonder how you reacted to it. Um, the biggest guy in town is a Mr. Endicott and and uh, Rod Steiger is the sheriff and, and uh, Poitier who's now helping at this stage they go to see Mr. Endicott and they have the discussion gets a bit heated. What happens then? Yeah, Mr. Endicott, the plantation owner, he slaps Virgil Tibbs, he slaps Sidney Poitier right in the face and uh, Sidney Poitier slaps him back which was something you don't expect. He's a the plantation owner, he can do anything to anyone, especially any coloured man anywhere in the town. And uh, for Sidney Poitier to do that, it was a shock. And what's interesting about that is it wasn't originally the book the film was based on. It was actually written in. And uh, Sidney Poitier demanded that it be shown in every cut of the film. So when it was shown in the South, where it usually would have been cut out by any other producer, Sidney Poitier made sure that they saw it as well. The other thing interesting that happened is um, the... The film opened in Los Angeles, where most films opened in those days. Uh, but Steiger and Poitier got on very well, and they used to go to the cinema to watch it for a different reason in the early days, because obviously the cinema would, would have black people in it in, in Los Angeles and white people, and the black people would cheer when Poitier hit in and got back. So they knew that they had struck a chord which is really, really interesting. And I think, Ronan, you make a very strong point that most movies of that kind would have cut that for showing in the South. And, and they didn't, principally because of Poitier's insistence. Mm. How did it do in the Academy Awards? It did brilliantly. Um, it won Best Picture, which is obviously the big one, and Rob Steiger, the police chief, he won uh, Best Actor for a wonderful performance that's worth watching the movie for alone. 
It also won uh, three other Oscars for screenplay, editing and sound. Yeah, five Oscars is some trick, but as you rightly point out, best film and best mm, actor yeah. are two key ones, you know, mm. and, and and that was actually uh, amazing. Poitier is now helping the chief, and the chief gets him a second-hand car, do you remember? And mm. they they went to the garage to pick up a second-hand car so Poitier could drive her out. What happened at the garage? Poitier, he says that he's uh, going to get a hotel somewhere now, and the mechanic, the black mechanic, just laughs at him. He knows that there's no hope a man like him can safely or reliably get a hotel in the south, and so he invites him to stay under his own roof. Yeah, I, I mean, that is 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 what um, I think. That was another. It was low key but dramatic because uh, hotels had segregation policies. There's no way Paddy would have gone into a yeah. hotel in the south in real life. So I I I can't. The picture, and I, I mean, because you're looking at it with a young man's eyes, and I'm looking at it because I saw it when it first came out, you know, and I'd see it in a very different way. And so, for me, it was dramatic. Was it dramatic for you? I mean, did you, as you watched that, did you say, God, this is great, <laughs> did you or not? Yeah, I did, definitely. I mean, I've seen it a few times, and every time there's just it just hits you the moments no matter how many times you've seen, seen them there's just some great moments in the film that are just so dramatic and so well written so well acted they're just they hit you like a brick wall yeah it, it, the the other one is and we I, if because I presume the two of us are recommending listeners yeah, to get the DVD so we better not give too much away but the other characters, I mean, obviously Steiger and, and Poitier um, dominate the movie. Uh, were there other characters that particularly appealed to you in, mm. in, in the cast? Yeah, there was one other character played by Lee Grant. She was the wife of the uh, murdered industrialist. What was very interesting about her is she saw how Virgil Tibbs was uh, much more experienced in the case. And she demanded that he um, be kept on, which was a shock. A white woman, a wealthy white woman demanding that a uh, black police officer be treated with respect and be kept in his job. Yeah, the character that uh, I I thought was a very interesting character, and we don't want to give too much away because people were going to watch it, was um, the guy working in the diner. And uh, he he uh, he was very tall. Interestingly, the actor he was six foot six. So there's a huge number of shots of him sort of leaning on the counter, and he had to lean on the counter because he was so tall compared to the other actors. He I thought he was an amazing character. I uh, I really you know I thought the actor played that part absolutely brilliantly, uh, and. The thing about the South for, uh, I mean, now uh, where we see things like people bending, taking the knee at games and uh, racism is, is, you know, Black Lives Matter, all this sort of thing, which are commonplace now. Again, asking the question of a 16-year-old transitioner student, what kind of insights did it give you when you were watching the movie? Like, how did you react to it? When I was watching, I hoped things had changed, but uh, I think a lot of the things going on in the movie still hold true today and are still happening in places in the South. I mean, it's awful how he's treated, obviously, but 
it's uh, hard to imagine that something that was so predominant 50 years ago has just completely vanished since. I can't see it happening, to be honest. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, as as we speak, um, we have situations where white policemen have, have, have killed or shot black people, uh, and in some cases young black people. So there is still, for America... There is still a major problem, despite the the enormous effect of this movie. So, uh, listen, um, thanks for having me in. Thanks for asking me about a movie I love. Um, Have you any ideas for your next foray into old movies? I think I'll check out more of the director, Norman Jewson's work. I mean, I really like this one. I say he's produced a lot of other things like it, which I'd be more than happy to watch. All right. Thank you very much, George. It's been a pleasure to have you and talk about the movie. Thanks, Sean. Welcome back to Radio Press. That was our mentor, George Hook and Ronan Murphy, with their review on the film In the Heat of the Night. Make sure to watch it. Next up on the podcast is Ross Daly, who takes on a topical but controversial issue in today's society. This isn't an ideological issue. It's about doing what's right. For those who don't know, conversion therapy is a completely unethical pseudoscience to try and change and suppress a person's sexual orientation or gender identity. It comes from the belief that who we are is a choice or some learned behaviour. In 2021, the use of conversion therapy across Ireland is still yet to be banned, something that needs to be addressed more. In 2018, Sinn Féin Senator Fintan Warfield put forward a bill prohibiting the practice of conversion therapy in Ireland. However, it's been three years and it's still only in its preliminary stages of being approved, and people fear that it's been forgotten because of the pandemic. However, on the 13th of April, young people from all across Ireland have launched the Anti-Conversion Therapy Coalition, or the ACTC, whose sole aim is to outlaw the practice of conversion therapy in Ireland. And so far, they've made incredible strides, and have gotten many responses from government officials, including representatives from Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Green Party, and Roderick O'Gorman, the Minister for Children, Equality, Disability, Integration and Youth. Before the launch, Chairperson of the ACTC, Aaron Grant, said, This isn't an ideological issue. It's about doing what's right. Statistics show that people who undergo conversion therapy have a 92% greater odds of suicidal ideation in their lifetime and 75% greater odds of planning and attempting suicide. Conversion therapy is rooted in nothing more than queerphobia and bigotry. And the sooner we do something about it, the sooner something is done about it. It doesn't matter if this affects you or not. The fact of the matter is, this is something you should care about. Be sure to follow us online or the ACTC, where you can learn more information and do your part to help end the allowance of conversion therapy. Thank you. Thank you, Ross, for bringing us such an important piece. But next up on the podcast, we have our usual Isaac Lee with the Tech Talk. But he's going to be talking about a profound issue which has been plaguing our society for quite a while, online bullying. Welcome to Tech Talk with me, Isaac Lee. Today I'll be talking about the effect technology has on mental health. Technology has revolutionised society allowing people from across the globe to correspond and connect with one another. It has made some work easier with access to the internet and automation by robots. 
But this isn't the only side of the story. Technology has become a platform which predators, bullies and more use as an outlet for their hate, while anonymous. This is because an account can be created within seconds to a large social media platform like Instagram, and they immediately start sending abusive messages to people. Social media enables these abusers to hide behind fake names and behind a screen in the comfort of their homes. It is without a doubt that if these people had to put their own name to these messages out for everyone to see, they would not send them because they wouldn't be anonymous and people will know who sent it and something will be done about it. Cyberbullying is a huge threat to the mental health of teenagers all over the world and the threat is growing and these social media giants need to take action on the cyberbullying done through its platform. Social media can also lead to insecurities as celebrities are posting pictures and people feel the need to be as slim as them and ultimately compare themselves to them. On social media, the life of a celebrity seems to be perfect with them only posting their best pictures even with a bit of Photoshop. People believe celebrities' lives are perfect, but they aren't. They only post the positive aspects of their lives. This pressure on teenagers to be like these celebrities has been detrimental to their mental health. But there is a bright side. Technology has allowed teenagers and people all over the world to connect and stay in touch even through a worldwide lockdown. Technology is the only thing keeping specifically teenagers' mental health intact, allowing them to still chat and connect with their friends, just not in the same way they used to. Because of the massive increase in use of technology during lockdown, I believe it will have a lasting effect even after the pandemic is over. Teenagers and adults alike were forced to use technology to connect with the people they love and to pass the time. Now that the majority of people have learned how to use these devices, I believe this will enable people to stay inside a lot more than previously before the pandemic. This would have a great strain on mental health if there is not a crackdown on hate on social media platforms. One massive change seen during this pandemic is seen with the COVID-19 tracing app, which informs you if you were in contact with someone with COVID-19. This sounds like a great idea, but just up to a few months before the pandemic, there would be a public outrage over this technology, as the government are constantly monitoring your location in order to make the app work. This symbols a change in human behaviour as we are constantly becoming more comfortable around technology. I've been Isaac Lee with the latest Tech Talk. For 100 years, tours have been part of Rugby Union. For 25 of those years, Irish Rugby Tours has been bringing schools, colleges and clubs to the far corners of the globe. Despite the disaster of 2020, none of our clients lost a deposit. We are now organising innovative plans for when the sport reopens. Why not visit our site at irishrugbytours.com or better still, contact us to talk about our ideas. Girls play rugby too! Welcome back to Radio Prez with me, Man. Here's a question for you guys. What do teapots, stamps and coins have in common? Well, here's Mark O'Connell to explain. Hello, my name is Mark O'Connell and today I'm going to be talking about collectors and why they collect. Teapots, stamps, coins, books, records, sports memorabilia, etc. What do these have in common? They often form the basis of common collections. They are collectibles. And what are collectibles, you may ask? Collectibles are material items that are valued, sought after and accumulated by collectors who can be professionals and amateurs. Why do they do it? Why do collectors spend time, money and energy seeking out items they then clutter their homes with and may appear useless to others? How many teapots do you actually need after all? 
Some say collecting is a basic human instinct, a survival advantage developed over millennia. Our ancestors who acquired objects like pottery tools. Others say that collecting things is a way of collecting wealth because a lot of items that people collect usually gain value over time. Some collectors collect for historical reasons, to keep a record of the past. Others collect because they feel emotionally attached to an item for nostalgic and sentimental reasons. There may also be psychological reasons, the pride of having the biggest, best or most of an item, or status. If you have a celebrity's item, maybe you become in some way like the celebrity. For me, it is more simple. I'm a collector and I collect many things because it makes me happy. I collect matchadax, sports memorabilia, magnets, stickers, but one thing I've really got myself into is Funko Pop figures. These are plastic toys with large empty black eyes, a square head and a small body, made by a company, Funko Incorporated, in Washington State. Each toy is based on a pop culture figure from sports, arts, cartoon shows, etc. The company takes pride in the fact that they can make any person, real or fiction, into a pop figure with a quote from them saying there's nothing we won't do at this point. My favourite two pop figures that I own are Johnny Cash and Muhammad Ali. For Johnny Cash's pop figure he's holding a guitar uh, in a suit and Muhammad Ali is throwing a punch. Why do they make me happy? They make me happy because I like the idea that no matter where the character is from they can be made into a pop figure. I hope the listeners can find something to collect that brings them happiness. One thing I will say, though, is collect responsibly. Don't let the collection collect you. Uh, if you have any cool collectibles at home that you'd like to share to us, please send it to us uh, via our email. The PBC Podcast 21 at gmail.com. Ivan Mark O'Connell, thank you for listening. As ever, Mark, you've brought quite um, a unique insight into various topics, but collectibles is something that I'd never have thought of. Thanks so much for that piece, Mark. It was great. Now we're reaching the close of this episode. But finally, before we go, Adam Sorensen will be interviewing someone who needs absolutely no introduction, the famous Cork singer John Spillane, who will sing us out with a song from his latest album. Hi John, you're very welcome to the music edition of the PBC podcast. Firstly, congratulations on your new album, 100 Snow White Horses. Thanks very much, Adam. Yeah, Yeah, it's going great. It's been out two weeks now and it it, uh, entered the charts at number two uh, in the independent charts at number five in the main album charts. So nine out of ten on Hot Press, album of the week on Radio One. uh, Great um, result. So I'm very pleased with it. Thank you so much, Adam. Where could we find it and listen to it? You can find it at at my website, johnspillan.ie. And you can buy a CD or you can order a vinyl or you can buy a download. That's brilliant. Thanks. So, John, how has lockdown affected your schedule and making music? It stopped all the gigs, Adam, you know, so it was quite a shock when it happened first. You know, I usually play maybe maybe one, two or three nights a week around the island of Ireland and sometimes with trips abroad. So um, it took away all the gigs. So it was quite a shock at the start. But when I adjusted to it, it was actually quite nice then. So has it made it easier or harder to write songs? Well, for writing, um, it's easier because I have more time and I've been concentrating more on writing and less on gigging. Would you ever consider writing an album of songs completely Oscar again? Um, I certainly would. And, you know, um, I, I spent three years um, composing a, an Irish language um, opera called Fiorishka, the, the Legend of the Lock. It's about the lock in Cork City. I might very well record that now um, in the next couple of years sometime. 
and that would be an album that would be nearly all Oscoilge. What inspires you writing in lockdown? For lockdown, I've been um, I've received a number of commissions from people to write songs. I received a number of commissions for my funded campaign that I ran last year. For example, I wrote a song for a couple in um, Philadelphia, and they wanted a song for their um, wedding anniversary. And specifically, they wanted me to um, talk about star constellations in Colorado and Native American mythology surrounding the stars. Do you enjoy commissions? I enjoy commissions. I find them quite challenging. It depends on the commission, you know. At the moment, I have a few on the go. I'm doing one for a guy, a customer in Australia, and it's about a nautical disaster in the Second World War. It's called the Bass Point Rescue. That's kind of enjoyable. It's a bit like adventure stories for boys, like I'm trying to describe the storm and the shipwreck and the rescue. That's kind of fun. And then I've got to write a song about um, for another customer, and it's about a house in Dingle. And uh, I'm not sure what way to go, bo- to go about that yet, but I... I I, I, I will find a way into that story as well, hopefully. Is it hard to write those songs? It's quite hard, yeah. It depends on which one, you know, as I say, um, the one about the, the rescue in the Second World War is not that hard because I've received loads and loads of um, historical information. So I just kind of rework that and I try and squeeze a lot of information down into a three-minute ballad. Is there anyone you enjoyed the most? I wrote a song for a customer, a commission I received, and it was about um, a flower garden in Austin, Texas. And um, they sent me all slides and pictures of their flowers and descriptions of the various names of the flowers and um, I loved that because I I love um, plants myself and um, gardens and I wrote 10 verses for that one it was called Ah the Garden and it's a description of all the flowers that these people in Texas have in their garden and so that was a lovely um, descriptive lyrical romantic piece I like the kind of romantic beautiful stuff It is well publicised now John that you will write a song for 1000 euro for any person body, town, organisation. Where did you get the inspiration for this idea? Well, that's a bit embarrassing, you know, about the thousand euros, because I should not really, I don't like people to know how much I charge for things, but it came from an article that was in the Irish Examiner about two years ago when I was um, doing my funded campaign. One of the rewards was that I would write you um, a song for a thousand euros. So I've got a number of those and um, I haven't failed yet, but um, some of them are more challenging than others. For example, I have to have write songs for people who have lost a loved one and for people who have passed away. And then um, that's a kind of a territory, you know, that I found difficult and challenging. They all vary greatly from each other. But um, the Hit Factory is still open for commissions at the moment, Adam. But um, I've got a bit of a backlog at the moment now. So I won't take on any more new ones for until I clear the backlog in the Hit Factory. How do you go about starring these songs? Well, um, I try and gather up as much material as I can. And then I try and find an angle. You know, with the flower garden, um, it's very much a song of praising the beautiful flowers and uh, giving them kind of personalities. Sometimes what I do is I like to paint beautiful pictures. Is it difficult when it's a new topic or is it interesting to learn new things? It's interesting to learn new things. Some songs are uh, better than others. Sometimes it depends on what they rhyme with and stuff stuff as basic as that. It must be great to have an audience worldwide. Ah, yeah. Well, you know... um, it's lovely, and um, um, I think in the in these days of the internet, you know, um, and with these streaming gigs, people can tune in from various countries. And um, I've been, you know, selling my my CD you now from my own site, and um, I've had uh, addresses all over the world, quite a lot in Cork, quite a lot in Ireland, but a lot in the UK, Germany, France, and in the a lot of USA people as well, and then the odd one in Australia, Canada. It's not a huge audience worldwide, but it is an audience worldwide and it's lovely to have it. Thank you so much. You have a new album. What inspired you? 
you know, I write songs on a fairly regular basis, Adam. And uh, when I had enough good ones put together and uh, I went over to London to my friend John Reynolds, who's a record producer, and I had made three albums with John in the past. So I went to um, London with John Reynolds and then my friend Pauline Scanlon, who's a beautiful singer from Dingle, she came over and she did loads and loads of harmonies and backing vocals. We made a kind of a fairy tale type album with a lot of Irish mythology and history in it and um, a lot of poetry. And uh, we got a certain angle going. So um, I suppose I was just inspired moving from song to song, really, and waiting till I get enough good ones to make a good album. What's your favourite song from your new album, John? Um, my, my own personal favourite um, is a song called Under That Old Clear Moon. That would be my favourite. And um, then there's another one called We Come in the Wind. And that was the first single. And it's received a lot of airplay on Irish radio in the last couple of weeks since it came out. Yeah, it's got something like, I think, 180 something plays on Irish radio. That's in the south and in the in the north of Ireland. BBC Ulster and Radio Foil. And it was um, also included in the RTE One album of the week and RTE Recommends. So, um so they're two of my favourite songs on their new record. And, um, you know, the airplay is going very well. The radio play is going very well. Thank you. Yes, so, John, it's been an honour having you on the podcast, but I believe you're going to play us a song from your new album. Yeah, I'm just going to play, I think, just a verse, I think. But I can do two verses, if you like. Um, Whatever you're comfortable with. Thank you. I'll do two verses, sure. And because it's Presentation Brothers School, which I did not go to, I went to St. Joseph's on the Mardike. Yeah, I went, I went there went as well. And I went to on um, in Bishopstown but I wrote this song called Bishopstown and because it's a Cork school this is a Cork song so I'll do a couple of verses of my song Bishopstown Adam thank you so much lovely to talk to you thank you thanks for joining thank you so much oh life seemed endless sorrows were few that time I was in love with you We walked on Central Avenue Mount Mercy girls all dressed in blue From Wilton Gardens to Haldine And all the parks that lay between When I was king and you were queen Of Bishopstown, of Bishopstown Without no tree, rows of houses follow me. Houses dancing on and on. Cherry Grove, Laburnum Lawn, the milk of human kindness flows. The sweet suburban breezes blow. The summer sun shines calmly down on Bishopstown, on Bishop. Bishopstown I loved a girl from Cedar Park She disappeared into the dark At cautious I felt the pain At Highfield Park She broke my heart We lit a bonfire in the night above the quarry blazing bright a shower of steps came raining down on Bishopstown on Bishopstown
Thanks, John. Wish you success with the album. Thank you so much, Adam. Lovely to talk to you. That was John Splant singing us out with a track from his new album, A Hundred Snow White Horses, which is available on vinyl and CD and can be found on his website, johnsplant.ie. And that was our special guest, the one and only John Spillane. That brings a close to episode four of Radio Press podcast. In association with Sculvera. Well, Iman, it's been great working with you. I've really enjoyed it. You've been a phenomenal co-host. It's, it's, it's honestly been a great time. It's my pleasure, Ronan, and it's been a great experience working with you and all the other speakers. This podcast was recorded in the Republic of Work studio, Cork's fully equipped podcast studio on the South Mall. We are grateful for the support of our principals of both schools, without whom it would not have been possible. Our thanks to the advertisers whose contributions will go to share. The programme was produced by Aina Olinchik and with the wonderful sound engineer Elaine Smith. I've been Ronan. Thank you for listening to Radio, Radio Press. Press.